Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is a fairly famous passage of scripture, even among non-believers, uh, about the topic of love. And um, we've, we've already mentioned this before, but in, in the Greek language, right, uh, the term that is used here in this passage is uh, agape. That was a common, a common use of the word uh, love um, among Greeks in the first century. And they would have understood that to mean a form of love with, it, with an otherworldly quality, okay, a, a type of love with an otherworldly quality, and we would understand that to be that it's a Christ-like love, that it's a sacrificial type of love. In our, in our King James, uh, the word is accurately translated charity, charity, charity being a love that gives without concern for what one might receive in return. You know, we, we discussed this a couple weeks ago when we first started talking about charity but we recognize that there's something broken about the way that we see love in our contemporary world, isn't there? Because in our world, we associate love with how things make us feel, right? Love takes on a self-serving quality. It's rooted in feelings. It's rooted in abstraction. And it's a downgrade to what true love should be. And this is why we're taking the time to break down this chapter into, into the very specific phrases that describe and define what charity are. We've got 15 words here that we're working, or 15 words or phrases that we're working through here in 1 Corinthians 13. All of these things intended to describe for us what this sacrificial Christ-like uh, love should be. And so that's where we're going to be. Now, our, our key question, uh, it's the same as last week, is the following. What does charitable love look like? What's it look like? So in a world where we're not really sure what love is, I think it's worth us asking the question, well, what does love really look like according to God's word and how he defines it? What's it look like for a Christian to properly love other people, both the lost and those that are within the bride of Christ? What does it look like when it's manifest? And that's what we're, that's what we're uncovering and investigating today. So are we ready to pray? Get right into it? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. We're grateful for how clear you are with us. I mean, we might not read it right. Uh, we might gloss over things. We might fail in our intellect and in our heart posture towards your word. But, but you, you definitely have been clear on this subject. And uh, you've given us so much to consider already. But, Lord, we do want our love to be perfected. Uh, we want our charity to be um, a reflection of the charity that we see in Jesus Christ. And so teach us today. I, I, I have, you know, from what I've looked at, I've, I've already had to confront some things in my own life, and, and I would anticipate, Lord, that you have some things that you want to say to us today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give these people, these, these wonderful people whom you love, give them a heart ready to receive even the difficult things of your word today. And uh, allow those things to take root and change us and to make us who you need us and want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Let's start by reading. and We'll pick it up here again in, in verse 4 where we were at last week. 
1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity and rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now last week we covered verse 4. There was five qualities that we found about charity in that verse. And now we're going to move on to verse 5. There will be four that we cover today. Okay, And the very first one that we encounter is this. Doth not behave itself unseemly. All right? Doth not behave itself unseemly. So what is unseemly behavior? What does the word unseemly mean? It means indecent or unfit. Indecent or unfit, if you're taking notes. Unseemly behavior is acting in a way that's counter to the expectation or the standard. So to behave unseemly is to behave inappropriately. Whether that means a breach of the doctrines of Scripture, which all of us do, right? All of us sin, all of us commit sin, and when we do that, we are breaching the doctrines and the commands of Scripture. So, so maybe it's that explicit, or in a way that upsets the ethics or customs of those that we minister to, right? Which is a little bit harder to understand from time to time, and a little bit more easy to offend in some instances, The English word unseemly shows up one other time in your Bible and actually refers to men who engage in homosexual behavior. That's the other time that word shows up, is in reference to men who breach the natural order. God has set in place a natural order. He intended from the very beginning that a man would be with a woman and a woman with a man. There's no other other options on the table, biologically speaking. This was his divine order that became our natural order. And when we go against that, it's unseemly behavior because it it breaks away from and is unfit according to the standards that God has given us. So unseemly behavior, listen, it doesn't necessarily take such sensational forms as to disrupt the order of creation. It's not always that extreme. Okay, sometimes, sometimes unseemly behavior may simply disrupt the order of the workplace. It may simply disrupt other people's schedules, disrupt a conversation even. See, indecency can be any activity or speech that common people would consider to be rude, base, or vile. Has has anybody ever been indecent? Or inappropriate? I mean, probably today, right? Alex, Alex is over there. He's like, he knows it is my like every 10 minutes. <laughs> now, let's just make it really simple. And I want, you, I want to, you to put on your imagination caps for a moment. And think about all the ways that you're prone to indecency or inappropriate behavior in the company of other people. It may take the form of disrespecting a person's authority. Have you ever done that before? Maybe it's a teacher or a parent. It may be the infraction of laws, like like breaking the speed limit, which again, some of you did today. 
on the way to church. Got to get to hospitality. Got to go serve the Lord. (laughs) God doesn't mind if I go 90. Unseemly. It's unseemly. It may take the form of, of failing to be on time when people are expecting you. Right? Ouch, that's all the 20-somethings. Like, oh, gosh, no. Yeah. It may mean um, cutting corners or cheating to get your way. It may be the use of crude words or conversation. Maybe it's cursing in 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 an environment where you know that's inappropriate. Being gossipy or or getting into business that doesn't concern you. All all of these are ways in which we can can be unseemly in our behavior. It doesn't have to take such extreme, you know, in our mind, we think of like, okay, unseemly behavior, murdering people, you know, punching people in the face. Yes, unseemly. But sometimes it, it takes the form of very simple and small things in your life where you just simply aren't considering other people's customs or cultures or, or environments. And when, you do, and when you fail to do that, listen, what you do is you leave space for accusation. You leave space for accusation. So whether a biblical infraction, a social infraction, a moral or ethical infraction, there are many ways in which our behavior can be unseemly. And when we allow ourselves to disrupt the etiquette and order of God or society, then we give wicked men a convenient excuse to cast judgment on the validity of your love and faith in God. Now, I want to point out that when, that when the world's expectations come in conflict with God's expectations, God's expectations win every time. Does that make sense? I want to be very clear on that. But where the two are indifferent to one another or neutral to each other or don't contradict each other, it is our responsibility to be blameless even before, you know, mankind, our city, our culture, our community. Why? Why? Why is that so important? Why is this that God wants us to understand this? Why was Paul so concerned with this over and over again in the epistles? Because it's important that we keep a godly testimony. Here's our first key point. Our indiscretions have the potential to defile our charity. Our little indiscretions, the things that we don't often think about or the things we don't think are a big deal, they have potential to defile our charity, our love. And this is something that God is concerned about. You know, in God's word, he warns us often to be blameless. You guys familiar with that phrase? Blameless. What is, what is, what is blamelessness? What is that? It's to voluntarily abstain from behaviors that might give people an opportunity to cast blame on you or your God. That's what, that's what it means to be blameless, to voluntarily abstain or avoid behaviors or words that might give people an opportunity to cast blame on you or your God. To be blameless is to be aware that people are observing your life, are they not? They're, ca- they're judging you. You can't judge me. Oh, yes, they can. You can't walk down the street without someone casting judgment, right? It's, it's, part, it's the part of the, of the way our brains work. It's the way that we think, you know? 
God gave us the ability to judge. It's how we discern whether or not something's dangerous, you know? A little alarm goes off in our mind, and we, we judge to make sure that we're not falling into a dangerous situation. We are built to judge, and it's part of life, and people are judging you. They're looking at your life, and they are asking themselves, if they know that you're a believer, they're asking themselves whether or not what you believe is valid based on your behaviors and your actions. Listen to what the Word of God says. 2 Peter 3.14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent. Diligent in what? That ye may be found of him. Found what? Found by other people of him in peace, without spot, and blameless before God. Okay? So we are supposed to be diligent in our behavior so that we might be approved in God's eyes, but also in the eyes of the people that we're ministering to. Philippians 2.14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So there's a crooked and perverse nation that's observing what you do, and they're looking for opportunities to rebuke you. Um, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So God is looking for us to be blameless, and the world is watching to see whether or not that will be a reality, whether or not that will be true. Okay? He's observing. They, they are observing. And so we should be decent in our interactions with people. God desires for us to conduct ourselves in a manner that reflects his perfect order and concern for people. Does he not love people? Does he not love the world? He gave his only begotten son because he loves the world that much. He's concerned for the world. He's concerned what they think. And he's using you to do the labor. And so here's our next key point. Charity is careful not to offend social boundaries of decency. Charity is careful not to offend social boundaries of decency. Now let me explain this to you. Cuz I don't I don't want you to think that I'm placating culture. Okay? But I want I want to so I want to very easy, like simply give you an illustration that, that hits home for Kaya. Um there's a coffee shop in our city that a lot of y'all frequent. Okay? So now everybody's like a few months back, it was brought to my attention that one of the baristas that works at this coffee shop posted on their social media about how Christians come into the shop frequently and don't tip. Okay? So, it was also brought to my attention that he posted this Immediately after, a bunch of y'all left the coffee shop. Now, say what you will about whether or not social media is the best place for you to vent your frustrations. We all know it's not. Okay? Say what you will about the manipulative way in which baristas ask for tips nowadays. Okay? It is, it, it, it ain't right. 
They're like staring you in the eyes. They turn that little screen around and they're like, I'm waiting. Okay. Don't think it's right. Don't think that's right. Okay. But put that aside for a moment. Say what you will about whether or not the guy even deserved the tip. Maybe the drink was garbage. Maybe it was the worst latte you've ever had in your entire life. But maybe he was right. Maybe people were disrespectful and stingy. I don't have any way of judging that, but here's the point. People are looking for opportunities to despise what you believe. So don't give them fodder because you are not blameless in your actions or behavior. Because you're stingy or rude or inappropriate. You know, one of the things I learned, um, you know, way back in ministry, is that if as, if as a pastor, I go out to eat, I, it doesn't matter how terrible the service is, I'm, I'm tipping 20%. When I get a coffee, even, like, it doesn't matter how terrible it tastes, no, how better, no matter how bad the service is. In these coffee shops, the service is bad. And I, 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 someone tell me a coffee shop in our city where the service is good, where people are kind to you, it's like you step to the counter and every barista in our city, just, they just want it. let's go. The music's too loud. I mean, maybe I'm just getting old. I don't even know. But, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. I recognized a long time ago that I don't have the privilege of just tipping whatever I want to, to tip. I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. Now, this kind, of, this kind of principle applies to every aspect of our lives. You are a representative of Jesus Christ, and you are called to blamelessness. You should not make it easy for people to point. Now, they will. They will. They'll find reasons. As a pastor, I've also learned that. No, no matter how blameless I think I'm behaving, people are going to, people want to hate. The haters are going to hate no matter what. You know, in Christ's life, it's, it's true uh, that he was willing to offend the religious. He wasn't opposed to offending people. He was willing to offend the pious. He was willing to offend the legalistic and proud. But Christ was not offensive because of impropriety or immaturity. He offended for the gospel's sake. Not to its detriment. He offended to legitimize truth, not harm it. And we must remember that charity will do nothing that endangers Christ's name. Understood? Yeah? Nod your heads and let me know. All right, moving along. Next, it says, seeketh not her own. Seeketh not her own. What, is it, what does it mean to, to seek Seek not her own, right? What does that mean? Or, or in other words, if, if charity is a reality in, in your life, you will seek not your own, right? Means, it means the following. It means your pursuits are motivated by consideration of others. If you seek not your own, your pursuits are motivated by the consideration of other people. And when you don't do this, we call it selfish. Selfish. Don't be selfish. Isaiah 56, 11 says, Yea, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. Some of us can never have enough, can we? 
I mean, just you can, you can measure this by your approach to uh, chips. Potato chips, Doritos. Just measure, just measure it by the way you approach snack food. And you know, you know that you can never have enough. It's disgusting. I'm, I'm a disgusting human being, and I have a doctor's appointment in one month, and I have got, I have got to get things in order. Okay? Yeah, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand. Ooh, now we're talking about ministry. A selfish shepherd cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone, for his gain from his quarter. See, we live in an exceptionally greedy world where we ask people to accept and celebrate our selfish behavior. And yet we refuse to extend the same courtesy to others. <laughs> My selfish behavior is okay. Your selfish behavior, not okay. But you need to respect my selfish behavior, but I'm not going to respect yours. I mean, this is why we live in bizarro world. But for the charitable believer, it is unacceptable to live life looking for advantages and using our relationships to get the thing that we want. Now, in the world, in the world it's okay, right? It's okay to manipulate your relationships, right? It's okay to, to abuse the integrity uh, of how you interact with people, it's okay to do that. There's, there's no rules, right? All those forms of morality have slowly been lifted from our, from our etiquette and the way in which we get, engage each other. We are allowed, we are now permitted to just do whatever we want to do to make ourselves happy. You understand that, right? But in a Christian worldview, in a biblical worldview, that is not prohibited, or that is not uh, allowed, Right? We are not allowed to live that way or to act that way. It's unacceptable to live life looking for praise or for profit or for pleasure. We love attention, don't we? We, we love to pamper ourselves. We love to talk about self-care. So, you know, when studying this, I took to Google, and I decided to, to, to ask Google, what are the top qu quotes about self-care? This is going to be so cringy. Are you ready? All right. So this is what the internet told me. Here's some, here's some quotes about self-care. You deserve better. You know you do. Now, these, uh, now, listen to me. These have, all have authors' names associated with them. I'm going to leave those out, okay? It's, just, we don't, it's unnecessary, okay? But you get the point, right? Someone wrote this in a book or an article. It's profound. You deserve better. You know you do. Here, accept yourself, love yourself, and keep moving forward. I mean, I, I could see that in the, you know, your mom's den on a, pla on a placard. <clears throat> be gentle with yourself. Okay. This one, this one's tough. Keep taking time for yourself until you are you again. Keep taking time. Do you hold to that principle? Okay. <laughs> be careful. What, you know, Eric's got to be more careful about what he, mm, 
about. You know, everyone takes that as an amen, right? Yeah. Keep, ta- keep taking time for yourself until you are you, you are you again. Well, who are you? you listen, do you know that you're, you are both the bad version of you, the terrible version of you, and the good version? You, that is who you are. You are you when you're behaving poorly, and you are you when you're behaving good, and life feels good. Don't dissociate. Deal with your sin. Here's another one. Don't apologize for feeling something. Don't apologize for feeling something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. You have, you have your own life. Why waste it on focusing on others? Here, here's, here, this is the last one. The most important person to seek approval from is yourself. Look, um, we don't need self-care quotes to remind us to be obsessed with ourselves. You know, we're, we're pretty good at that without any help. We are the center of our whole universe, and, and we, fall, uh, we fail to see that God has called us to consider others instead. In a world where love revolves around our personal well-being and satisfaction, it makes it incredibly difficult to see love from God's perspective. It's hard to see it the way he sees it. It's hard to think in terms of sacrifice. But here's the key point. Charity does not prioritize self-interest. Charity does not prioritize self-interest. Philippians 2, 4 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. God is concerned. God is concerned about this selfish kind of behavior. He has opinion about it when his children are selfish. Christians need to check this, this me time business. I need me time. Just a little me time. We need to check that. It's nonsense. Ask ourselves, ask ourselves the following. Is our inward focus really an inward obsession? Is our inward focus really, really just an inward obsession? Does my view of self-care fit within the charity paradigm? Does it? Now look, even God sees that it's important to have some degree of self-love. It's natural for all people to have enough love and care for themselves that they feed themselves every day, they exercise, they take care of their body, they protect themselves from harm, and they compose a meaningful life. They surround themselves with meaningful things. Everyone should love themselves to this point. God built that into us. That's a good thing. Okay, he loves us. We should love us. We just shouldn't be obsessed with us. But Jesus also made it plain that we should use our understanding of self-love as the measurement for how we love others. It's the measuring rod. Matthew 12 says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God is not saying that charity demands you disregard self or neglect all your self-interests. No, what God is saying is that we should never seek our own interests to the hurt or neglect of others. And some of us do. 
Some of us are so busy with us that we can't even see the hurt of people around us. We can't, we can't take care of each other. We don't know how to minister each, to each other because we're too busy self-caring. Charity may at times even ask you, listen, to voluntarily refrain, refrain from your own self-interest to prefer others greater than yourself. Romans 12.9 says, let, not, uh, uh, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. So we should, we should learn to become uh, selfless people. We should learn how to do that. What do we, how, do, how do we do that? How, what do we do to become selfless? Well, we should become like Christ. Specifically in the area of, area of learning to sacrifice the stuff that you're into in order to focus on other people. I would bet Jesus was into the throne room. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you imagine, like Philippians chapter 2, wouldn't you imagine that he was into the like, whole worship thing? Like the living in the heavenly realm thing? He was probably into that. But he came down here and did this. So we need to learn how to put down the stuff that we think is important in order to focus on other people. So here's some examples. Maybe don't do a movie night for the third night in a row. And consider instead meeting up with someone to be an encouragement to them. Maybe rather than spending money on another pair of shoes, another outfit, another, another fit, Another streaming subscription? Look, what is the deal with the, the streaming subscriptions? I mean, they're everywhere now. You can't watch your shows. You can't work out. You can't do anything. You have to have a streaming subscription to do anything. Ten bucks here, twelve bucks there. Look, look. Don't fall prey. They're after you. They've got your email address. Maybe, maybe, maybe don't buy that new piece of furniture. Consi maybe you should consider helping someone go on a missions trip this year that can't afford it, that desires, that has a conviction to go. They just don't have the money to do it. Maybe, maybe you help someone with something like that. Here's the key point. Charity insists on constant awareness of others' spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. Now, we, we don't need, I'm not suggesting that we live enslaved to other people's emotions and feelings. What I'm saying is we ought to let the spirit in us discern among the people around us what physical, emotional, and spiritual needs need to be met. That's what charity looks like. Charity insists upon it, in fact. Charity demands it. It's called conviction. When your heart yearns because you see a need elsewhere in the body, you want to respond. You should want to respond. And it might cost you something, but it's worth it. It's worth it. So to get to this place, we must learn to take all of our activities and investments and extract them from our self-serving and biased context. Then we can investigate and reconsider them in light of charity and a biblical worldview. 
Take all those things that you like to, all the you stuff, take it out, put it in the light, and ask yourself, is all of that stuff necessary in light of who Christ has called me to be? It's worth doing that. It's worth looking in that mirror. Next, charity is not easily provoked. It's not easily provoked. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It is difficult. Not easily provoked means it is not, or it is difficult for you to be emotionally strained by people or circumstances. Now, listen, I, I get it. We live in a world where it's more common than ever for young people in particular to feel anxious, depressed, afraid. There's many of you in this room right now who have probably, be, probably been diagnosed by a therapist as being an anxious person. In fact, some of you may even t- take uh, prescriptions for that. It's a thing. But charity says, says that we should not be easily provoked, not easily offended. See, we grow so exasperated with people and situations, so, so, so easily we can go and fall into anger, right? We can get frustrated or afraid or, or disappointed with people just like that. Someone says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing, looks the wrong way. And it throws our whole world into a tizzy. Key point. Charity is not quick to offense. Charity is not quick to be offended. Some of you are offended all the time. Offended by what you, know, what you encounter and the way people treat you. Man, to live that way is terrible, by the way. It's a terrible existence to, to constantly be offended. God desires instead for you to be temperate. So the antithesis of being easily provoked is to be temperate. And the definition of temperate is to have charge of your emotional faculties. To, have, to be able to exercise control over your emotional faculties to be temperate is to refrain or to remain composed despite people or circumstances, which is not always easy, is it? But it's necessary. So let me give you an example. This week, this week's been rough, okay? It's been rough for me. It's been a tough one. Um, man, not only was there really difficult ministry situations that had to be dealt with, uh, but also, uh, I mean, Alex was there. My, I'm like in the middle of working on my sermon. I go out to go get lunch. I'm like, I'm going to go get something to eat. I'm going to take a break, come back. And I go out to the car and it's like, you know, it's like, oh, the battery's dead. We try to jump it. It doesn't work, right? So I send my car. This is the third time we've had a car in the shop in the last two months. The, starters, the starter won't work. Oh, okay. Okay. My kids are all at home right now puking their guts out, Right? Uh, you know, there's, this, is, this is what life is like. This is how things go. You have good weeks, you have bad weeks, but here's the deal. I recognize when things are difficult, and you'll recognize this too. When things are difficult for me, I tend towards being short with people, being frustrated, being easily offended by what people say. And it puts you, and it puts you in a situation, makes you vulnerable 
to being out of control with your emotions, easily provoked. It causes you to be easily provoked. And God's not down with that. He calls us instead to be temperate. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, speaking of those who exercise and work out and train to run races, is the reference there. They do it for a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So God wants to train us and to teach us how not to be offended by things. Titus 1.8 says, But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. This is, this is, these are the character qualities of a leader in ministry. Titus 2.2 says that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. God is calling for mature people to be temperate in their emotions. Matthew Henry says this. You know, Sam had a Matthew Henry quote today. I don't know if you caught that. And I almost was like, well, should I delete mine? I mean, I didn't want to step on his toes. No, but this is good. We got to keep it. You ready? Where the fire of love is kept in, the flames of wrath will not easily kindle, nor long keep burning. Here's the good part. Anger cannot rest in the bosom where love reigns. Look, you have been and you will be tested in this area. And you'll be tested every day of your life. In every relationship, in every moment, in every decision, every interaction, you'll be, you'll be tested. The key to finding temperance is to walk with Christ in his word and to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Okay, so th- this is the point that I want to make is that is that Galatians 5 uh, uh, reveals to us that if you just simply want to become disciplined in the area of temperance, it's not really possible. Like if there was a law that we could obey, if there was a series of rules that we could follow, if there was some sort of standard which we could try to conform our life to alone, we would fail to do that, right? The work of temperance is a work of the Spirit, It's a byproduct of walking with Jesus Christ. It's a a byproduct of knowing him and loving him and adoring him and, and seeking him in his word and speaking with him. And the walk of your life, the fruit of your life will become temperance. Key point. Charity allows us to reframe our emotions in light of spiritual realities. To take our emotions and the way we feel and all these things, charity allows us, charity in our life, love, love allows us to take all those things and to reframe them within the realities of who God is. We begin to see things the way he sees them. And it makes it harder for us to be offended by people, the people that God loves. But we've got to see things through the lens of charity. And so many of us are, are, are literally slaves to our emotions. I mean, I could just ask your Bible study leader. <laughs> because some of us are so consumed with the way that we feel that, it, that, that we have no choice in our, in our physical body but to constantly voice all the ways in which we're hurt. 
Like we just can't help it. And I'm praying that all of us in time, as we walk with Jesus Christ, would learn, learn that Christ has the answers. That knowing him is where the answers to our emotional problems and the upheaval that we feel, that with him the answers are taken care of. Because he reframes our emotions in light of spiritual realities. Next, thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil. What's thinketh no evil mean? mean? It means that one does not cherish malice, anger, or revenge in their heart or mind. Thinketh no evil means rather than assuming the worst of a person, choosing to assume the best of people. Okay, we are also very terrible at this, are we not? Here's the point that I want to make. Charity is not prone to suspicion or distrust. Charity is not prone to suspicion or distrust. Now, in a world where we're always feeling hurt, we're always offended, our natural response for a lot of us is to think evil of other people. These two things kind of couple to one another, these ideas. But charity is not prone to suspicion or distrust. Now, God desires that we learn how to assume the best of other people. God is not telling you to ignore evildoers. He's not telling you that. He's not telling you to turn a blind eye to legitimately suspicious you know, interactions or behaviors in other people. Like, I'm really thankful for our security team. Like, even right now, Xander's like peeking out the window, looking around, ready to, ready to protect the flock, right? All right, guys, stay, look at Alvaro back there. He's like. <laughs> it's good, it's good. It's, it's, healthy, it's healthy to be observant and to be aware and if an evildoer does present themselves, we have to deal with that. There's no doubt about that. In fact, God has called us to be circumspect or highly aware of the evil around us. And Paul warns the church in Ephesus to keep an eye out for those who may do harm to God's people. Acts 20, 29 says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul was about this business, being aware of those who are gen genuinely suspicious, where there's proof and evidence that they're out to harm the flock. And he's willing to warn against those people. We see it in almost every one of the epistles. But being protective of God's people, while that's a good thing, we should never indulge suspicion without proof. We should never indulge negative inferences. We should never develop evil opinions of people as a habit because it's unfair and it's unkind. And it's even worse when this devolves into evil surmising and gossip because it, it, it generally does. It generally goes from being suspicious and having your thoughts. And then it slowly turns into, you know what? You know what I've noticed in so-and-so? 
sister such and such. And then we have things to say. Not, you know, just within our circle, you know, just within, with our girls, with our guys, just have a couple things to say, you know, just to vet my ideas, just to see if they're legitimate. And then they become cancerous. They become cancerous to the body. See, too many of us are prone to assume the worst of people, of leaders, of the church, and it's our default setting. We, we walk into the room and we're ready to think the worst. We have, we have our guard up constantly. We don't see hope in people. We don't see opportunity in people. We don't, we don't see the grace of God on people. We are prone to think negatively and assume the worst. Now here's the point that I need to make, and that's this. Cynicism poisons unity and deflates the work of ministry. And this is so true. So for the person who is cynical by nature, and it's funny how people want to spin this. Well, you know, I'm a critical thinker. No, you're not. No, you're not. Uh, like, critical thinking is good. God has asked us to be critical thinkers. The Bereans were critical thinkers, right? And they're praised. Critical thinking is fine in light of God's truth and proof and evidence and such and such an investigation, right? Discovery. What is true? It's critical thinking. It's constructive by nature. Cynicism is deconstructive. It's poisonous. And some of us, some of us legitimize it and feel justified because we assume ourselves to be, you know, insightful. And critical about things around us. No, no, no. That kind of thinking, it poisons our unity. And it will deflate the work of the ministry first in your life and in time in the lives of other people. Because it will create suspicion abroad. Those that think, think evil as a habit are looking for blemishes on every soul and on every endeavor. Well, why are we doing that? Couldn't we do it better this way? Why does so-and-so get to do this and that? See, it weighs down the work. It weighs it down. And it makes hopeless what God calls opportunity. It makes opportunities that God's given us, that he's put in our lap, seem as though they're hopeless, as though people are hopeless. And it's not true. It's not true. There are far too many of us who give up on relationships way too soon because we get some sort of insight. We get some sort of idea. We get some sort of perception. We make some sort of assumption about someone or a people. And then we write them off. It's done. It's done. I can't. I can't do it. And we, we ascribe wickedness to something that God's calling good. That God's saying that there's opportunity and this is hopeful. This person, has, this person has a place. If you think this way, you will always be reluctant in your relationships and you will end your life and your ministry with great regret. No doubt about it. We should be an optimistic people and full of hope. Look, in the world we live in, there are all kinds of spaces there are all kinds of tribes of people that love to entertain suspicion, right? 
I mean, we become so conspiratorial as a society that we've, we've, we've boiled it down to conspiracy within our relationships because it's a bit, such a huge umbrella because we can't trust the government. We can't trust, you know, so-and-so. We can't trust Chinese balloons and floating. and we can't, we, can't trust, we can't trust anything we hear. So we take that, we take that kind of general suspicion in the air, the Laodicean air, right? It, it's, it's in the air around us. We're breathing it in. It's everywhere we go. So we take that kind of thinking, that distrust, and then we boil it down, and it begins to impose itself on the way that we interact with one another. That's no good. That's no good here. See, the world loves to assume the worst of people. In fact, when we run out of things to judge, that's no problem. We just start judging and canceling people that lived hundreds of years ago. <laughs> like, well, I've judged all y'all. I'm going to start judging people that fought in wars 700 years ago. And one at a time, I'm going to deliberately cancel them via my Twitter feed. Because they were backward. They're so backwards. Well, quit looking backwards. Of course, of course it's backwards. It's 700 years ago. Give them a break. You know what people are going to think about you 500 years from now? But we run out of stuff to judge. We'll just find something else. Because we love to think evil. There's no room for that kind of behavior in the church. See, charity leaves no space for constructing presumptive narratives or weaving unfounded suspicions. There's no room for it. When the doors of God's church open, his people must be prepared to give other people the benefit of the doubt. Waiting for others to encounter God's grace. Waiting for others to make decisions. Waiting for others to repent. Waiting for others to be broken. Waiting for others to praise. Waiting for others to be discipled. Waiting for others to be sanctified. Waiting for others to see God's word the way it ought to be seen. Can you not wait for that? Or are you going to write someone off as they walk in the door? Look, here's the deal. I desire, I greatly desire, because I believe it's God's desire, that Kaya would be a space that anyone could come into. Now, we're, we're going to unapologetically speak God's word. Okay, and if you're offended by that, that's not my bad. Okay, Jesus was down with that, so I got to be down with that. Okay, that's not on me. Okay, that's on you if you're going to be offended. But the thing that we will do, and I pray that we'll do, is we will love you and believe that God wants to do something in your life, that he does have a plan for you. That he, that he wants to do something mighty in your life. And despite how difficult your background is or whatever sins you're wrestling with or, or whatever it is, you know, that you've, that, that you've grown up with and it's, it's become a vice in your life, look, I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of your sin. None of us should be. Key point. Charity holds gracious opinions and is unaffected by visible faults. Charity holds gracious opinions and is unaffected by visible faults. We've all, we've all got them. We've all got them. In fact, I don't, in this room, I mean, I think Eric probably knows my faults better than anybody. And yet, what, for whatever reason, he's still one of my best friends. 
he manages to love me despite the fact that I'm, I'm a pretty terrible person. That's wonderful, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to know that you can be loved in a way that assumes the best of you? That doesn't write you off or say that you're hopeless? That's the kind of love that Christ has extended to us and that's the kind of love that we ought to extend to one another. I wanna invite um, Seth up and we're gonna close in worship. As we do that, hold tight. Don't, don't, I don't wanna lose you, hold tight. This is the invitation. It's the same as last week. Here's the invitation. If you recognize as a believer in Christ, and we talked about it, you're spiritually gifted. God has, God has given you unique gifts. He's made you unique. And he wants to use you right here, right now. He wants to use you. But you're realizing that your failure to be charitable is actually impeding your ability to minister the way that you should. In other words, in other words, your lack of love in one of these areas is hindering in some way this, those spiritual gifts being manifest in your life. I want you to come forward and I want you to deal with them. I mean, I want you to deal with them like the way that we've studied them from God's word. I want you to say, I am, I tend to think evil of people and I want to deal with that today. I am easily provoked. I'm easily offended. I want to deal with that today. I'm going to come forward. I'm going to meet with someone or I'm going to grab someone next to me and we're going to pray and we're going to deal with that stuff before the Lord. You should do that. Do that. But there's also another person in the audience that, that I feel like I need to, to call out. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you have never experienced this kind of charitable love firsthand, then how could you ever possibly love someone this way? Jesus Christ loved you with a charitable love, and that's why he came to the world. He came here for your sins. He came here to deliver you because he loves you, he adores you, and he wants you for himself. And if you're beginning to see that today and you're beginning to feel that and to know that is true, but you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. You've never made him your savior. You've never called out in repentance, God, cleanse me of my sin. Make me your child. Show me that charitable love. I need you today. Look, today's the day to do that. It's not tomorrow. What have you been waiting for? What are you waiting for? You've been looking for this kind of love your whole life. This is what you've been looking for. And he wants to give it to you in grace. So today is a day to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you know, if, you're, if you sense that call right now, come forward and speak with someone and work through that. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how uh, pointed you are when you speak. Uh, Lord, I pray that even uh, with that pointedness, I know that you, you often speak with a very still, small voice. And, and so, Lord, I pray that the, the still, small voice within us would cause us and move us to, to take a risk, <laughs> to step out, to say there's something wrong in the way that I think, in the way that I feel, and in the way that I relate to people. There's, there's something wrong with the way I understand my world and, and the way I understand eternity and the way that I understand religion. There's something wrong and I can sense that. It's a still small voice in my heart. You're calling me. Lord, I pray that people would respond to that, that they wouldn't be afraid because, because in you, <laughs> in you, there is no fear. 
just power, love, and a sound mind. That in you, they know that there's just charity, not judgment, not hatred, not offense. I mean, we've done, we did everything we could to offend you. And yet you loved us still. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would use your word, you would use your spirit even now to help us to make decisions that allow us to be right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.